Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Cultural Capital, our last missive before diving into 18 days of solid film watching. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Anders Furs. And I'm Eloise Ross, excited to be back at the Cult Cap. Yes, welcome back, Elo. It's good to have you back. Welcome Thanks, back guys. to the coalface of cinema. <laughs> yes. In this episode, we'll be previewing some of the highlights from the schedule, opening the Cultural Capital Film Diary. I'll be sharing an interview I did with one of Australia's foremost documentary filmmakers, Genevieve Bailey, and we'll be singling out our favourite films of 2018 so far. But first, a review of Guy Madden's homage to Vertigo and San Francisco, The Green Fog. Let mystery have its place in you. Do not be always turning up your whole soil with the plowshare of self-examination. Leave a little fallow corner in your heart ready for any seed the winds may bring and reserve a nook of shadow for the passing bird. Keep a place in your heart for the unexpected guest. There is a long history of found footage remix work using movies from Austrian artist Martin Arnold and his Freudian reworkings of old Andy Hardy films to the Australian duo Soda Jerk's political remixing of the Australian film Canon. One of the most notable of these types of filmmakers is the Canadian Guy Madden, who's returning to this year's Melbourne International Film Festival following 2015's The Forbidden Room with new work The Green Fog. Originally commissioned by the San Francisco Film Festival, Madden and his regular collaborators Evan Johnson and Galen Johnson remix footage from 100 films and TV series set in the city. It's probably best described as the filmic equivalent of a collage, clips from a multitude of different films and styles are mixed together, with the narrative scaffolding taking the form of Alfred Hitchcock's film Vertigo. So on one level, The Green Fog is a novel remake of Hitchcock's thriller, but the filmmakers are not content to just remake a movie. For one thing, almost all of the dialogue has been edited out of many sequences, The filmmakers both expand and contract narrative events and on multiple occasions happily swerve into complete diversions, including a five-minute Chuck Norris study. It's fun to spot the references, everything from Dirty Harry to Mrs Doubtfire and San Andreas, and the effect, for me at least, was very much as if watching a frenzied, highly cinephilic dream. Eloise, were you compelled by The Green Fog? I was so into this. I love this type of filmmaking. Um, I mean, you mentioned some names there, but some other people who do this kind of thing whose work I love are people like Christian Markley and Matthias Mueller, who doesn't have as high profile as some of these other people, but has made quite significant works in this landscape. And of course, I mean, this is like catnip for me. San Francisco, Hitchcock, old films, new films, just like I love playing Spot the Reference, but I also love getting caught up in a whirlwind of what other people are composing. And I think what the filmmakers have done really well is create this really interesting cinematic and also topographic study of San Francisco and San Francisco cinema. And obviously the research that they've done in compiling this is sounds like a dream to me. I would love to do this kind of thing, but they have constructed something so well and so engaging in a both an intellectual and I think sensory sense that the audience just can't help but get sucked in I mean it's 62 minutes but I think that removal of so much of the dialogue which is done in a really obvious but very interesting way makes it seem more drawn out as a film because you're just constantly waiting like taking half a breath for a word to be said but what they do is they just They like keeping the breath that people take before they say a word, but then cut out the word in most cases. And that that was really, really super interesting for me, both as a narrative experiment, but also one from the audience's perspective in terms of what we expect. Um, Anyway, I loved it. Love this type of stuff. Andy? Yeah, I think it's really... Uh, a film that you get more out of the more interested you are in, in San Francisco. Like I love the way that you would see it, Elo, is probably totally different to the way 95% of people would see it because you would have this whole, this is interesting. To me, I just found the, the dialogue being cut out hilarious. Like I was mm-hmm. just, I found it so funny that these people were just div- like stripped back to being like these empty people talking about, you know, flirting or sure. being serious or whatever. Like the way that the themes came through was really interesting. Um, there, God, I said interesting, but actually, I just, I just thought it was so funny, and it got funnier as well. At the beginning, I, when I when I saw the trailer for this, I was like, what, "Hang on, what? Yeah, <laughs> is there been a mistake here? If we, are we missing some <laughs> frames or something? Like, what's going on?" But no, it's it, it reminded me straight away of the clock, like uh-huh. which Christy Markley's twenty four hour film, which mm. everybody should get a chance to see if they ever do. 
But also I was wondering whether you, you guys thought this sort of premise, this idea of cutting up TV shows and films to tell the story of Vertigo could have been stretched any longer than 62 minutes. Do you think it would have gotten a bit tiresome? That's an interesting question. I found the, the Vertigo reworking to be, the, for me anyway, less engaging than the other stuff that they were doing. So to me, I appreciated the fact that they were quite happy to diverge into other things, you know, such as this um, kind of bizarre Chuck Norris yes. <laughs> um, appreciation that sort of happens halfway through the film. And, you know, these dialogue, uh, bringing dialogue in at interesting times, making weird associations. To me, that's where the enjoyment of the film, though, yeah. with those aspects, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, also the score I thought was remarkable. The score was that, yes. brilliant. Um, Shout out to Jacob Garchik, the composer. Yeah, and what I thought was really excellent was that at the beginning, so after that initial sequence where there's a lot of images of, you know, there's a man climbing a building and then there's that one single shot taken from Vertigo, which is the first shot of Vertigo of yeah. Jimmy Stewart's hand on the ladder. That's the only shot I from Vertigo the only in shot, the whole yeah. thing. Mm. But mm. The, after that, there's sort of a reimagining of Bernard Herrmann's score from Vertigo. But after that, it becomes its own thing. So you get invited and sucked into this world where you're like, oh, yeah, it is it is Vertigo. And the film does follow in that narrative. But also I think that you can just completely take it as something else, that it doesn't – you don't need to know what Vertigo is yeah, to watch Yeah, yeah, that's film. a very key point. And so the, the score moves away from that I thought was very clever. Yeah, I wasn't. Sh- I didn't think the storytelling was. I mean, to follow the narrative, it did play this play play this game for anybody who hasn't seen Vertigo recently. You'll be like, oh yeah, the driving scene. Oh yeah, this scene. Uh-huh. Like that sort of stuff turned up, but it turned up more like a memory than any sort of direct exactly. demand. Exactly, that's a very Vertigo kind yeah. of yeah. thing to exactly. say. Well, it's Andy. a very Vertigo kind of thing because Vertigo, yeah. you know, is this whole obsession it's about memory and loss and yeah, reconstructing in exactly. your own mind. Yeah, but I find it. I mean, there are shorter films, for instance, Christian Markley's Seven Minute Telephones which is kind of a narrative in a weird uh, elliptical sense because he creates a narrative of people answering phone, phones ringing, people answering phones, a tiny bit of conversation and then people hanging up phones throughout seven minutes. So it is a narrative but in a sense it's just all about feeling and I think that maybe that's what this film does. If it was longer people might expect more um, concrete um, storytelling from it but because it kind of bridges this link between being the Vertigo story and also just being an experience of San Francisco. I think 62 Minutes is pretty perfect for it. Yeah, same. I agree. Mm -hmm. And interesting that you mentioned this uh, concrete uh, because it does feel kind of slippery. Like you can't quite grasp the texture of the film is... Re- I mean, he plays around with texture in very interesting ways in all of his films. Mm. Um, and I mean, some of yeah. this stuff is like for galleries. You know, there's this yeah, yeah. writer, Nicholas Boriard, who I really like, and he's written a book called Post-Production where he identifies a lot of this kind of found footage remix work as post-production that belongs in a gallery space and that is a different experience. I mean, Soda Jerks, Terra Nullius, they've said is for gallery viewing rather than cinema viewing. Um, obviously, this was commissioned by a film festival, so that's not the case. But, I mean, those kind of things I think are very slippery in themselves. Definitely, definitely. So it makes it for a very unique, interesting uh, experience as well. And and um, in in following on from that, it um, it again a festival film, again a, a great film to see in a festival yeah, environment. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, here at Miff, it's screening with a ten minute film called Accidents, which is his homage to it's a one take homage to Rear Window, from what I gather, and requires Guy Madden. Yep. Oh, cool. Uh, and yeah. the and the um other two Galen, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, the two Johnson. Johnsons, yeah, yeah. And Galen, cool, Johnson, yeah, yeah. Which which I think is really great. So anybody who's maybe reticent to shell out a whole like um, section of their pass or twenty dollars on seeing this seventy two minutes, I think it is the sort of thing you could easily balance it up by just buying a ticket to a Lav Diaz film or a four hour <laughs> movie. So if you're feeling like seventy two minutes you isn't need long to enough, ground, yeah. because it's it's totally yeah. If you and I feel like, I mean, like we it. all watched it at home on a screener, but I feel like watching it with a crowd of people mm. would increase the comedic aspect, like that whole withdrawn sense where you're anticipating conversation but the dialogue gets taken away, like that experience as, as a group would, I think, be quite wonderful. 
Um, yeah, and also part of the I mean, part of it is the score and the sound. We haven't talked about the foley the use of foley yet in this, but I find that extremely hilarious as well. Yeah, that some of them were from the original yeah, examples, and, then some, and of some, some of them, them had clearly been reused. <laughs> yes, or in some cases, just with taken out. Yeah, like or time. just you know, different dialogue overlaid um, from different entirely different films, which was quite funny. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I loved it, um, and I loved seeing so much Rock Hudson. Yes. Yeah, and I, I did like get into a little Google um, search hole about Rock Hudson last night after I watched this. I was having a nice time. Did anyone else appreciate NSYNC's? Um, oh, God, yes. <laughs> that came out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, So, and, and that really spoke to the, um, I don't know, the generosity and the, the, hum- the sense of humour that he has. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's and that these examples go from like the 1900s, you yeah, know, the silent, the films. silent yeah. films, the first decade of the 20th century, through to I don't know, TV shows made this decade maybe, or last decade at least. You yeah, know, so well, at least San Andreas well, you know, was yeah. in indis- it. Yeah. An indiscriminate yeah. kind of yeah. choice um, of of stuff that was filmed there. I mean, we have touched on the editing, but um, I think it's worth pointing out that this is just a, you know a stunning example of. Um, of cinematic rhythm Yeah Yeah good point Yeah I did notice that What's up doc was missing though Yeah I was Where's wondering Where's my what's that, up doc <laughs> Anyway Yeah <laughs> where, where was the room Let it go <laughs> Yeah where was the room I was half expecting the room To <laughs> pop up actually <laughs> Yes, but, yeah, it is great. Oh, and <laughs> Man and the Wasp, one of the great San Francisco oh, films. Uh, yeah. Well, a little yeah. too recent, maybe. A little too recent. Maybe that can be the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> so, The Green Fog and Accidents is screening 8th of August at 9:15 p.m. at Acme Two, and the 12th of August at 11:30 a.m. at the Forum. Both of them still have tickets available. try to elevate themselves and transcend Uh, but there's absolutely nowhere to go it's better if we just go down because you don't know shit until you live it Uh, until then it's just a fucking Fucking idea idea. also uh, at Myth is Acute Misfortune Eloise you're one of the few people in the world probably who's seen this film and I understand you can't uh, you know you can't say too much yeah, don't want to say too much because it is having its world premiere at MIFF. But I had heard lots about this film because it's a Melbourne – well, I mean, it's a Blue Mountains film. But Eric Jensen, the author of the biography of Adam Cullen, is from Melbourne. Andy, you work with Eric. So true. A lot yeah. of my friends work um, in, that, uh, in that area. And so I knew a lot about this film, I think, and it's – preparation and so I was really looking forward to it I haven't read the biography but I loved the film I thought it was really well done it kind of tells the story of Adam Cullen and Eric Jensen during this particular period of time and it becomes a portrait of the two of them together and how they interact with each other and also how they interact with other people told through simple fragments of time so there's no big there are portions of the film that are dedicated to longer periods of time than others but overall I think it was just a selection of fragments and so it became this really interesting 90 minutes to experience and get to know the two of them in both a very intimate and also kind of very distanced way I think the whole idea maybe one of the meditations of of this book is that it's so very difficult to know a person um, anyway, and so that I thought was done really well. Anyway, I think it's a really stunning film. Evelyn Ida Morris's soundtrack is so wonderful, like so perfect. So that was really great. And it looks beautiful. Mm. Um, and you can tell that Thomas M. Wright really, this is his debut feature. I thought it was stunning. So yeah, fantastic. Yeah. It's really great because I have heard so much about this film that I, that I, it paid off in the end. Mm. Anyway, really I'm excited. Really oh, thank you. To say it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so the 10th of August screening is already sold out and the 4th of August is selling fast, but there's a screening on the 18th of August at 1.45pm uh, at Hoyt's, which is still available. 
maybe see that. Um, what else have you seen of, mm. that's, uh, that you would recommend so far? <clears throat> uh, well, I saw First Reformed and I also loved it. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My sins, the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. So how are you? Oh, I'm fine. No, really. It's been a while since we've talked. Even a pastor needs a pastor. Did you see the doctor? You need someone to take care of you. Well, I want you to be happy. I know that nothing can change. And I know there is no hope. Reverend Toller? Yes, Mary. You must come over. You must come over now. This came out in Europe and America long before it came out in Australia. I mean, it's not even getting a release here from what I from what really? I've heard. Oh, it's having a few yeah, festival screenings and then going straight to Netflix oh, they have to see it or something. Um, I mean, who knows if there's a good response at the festival. Maybe it will have some sort of release. Um, but that's what I've heard. And so I thought, well, all right, I'll see it overseas. And it's definitely a cinema film. It's, it's kind of – it's very slow. It's very – meditative but it's also quite traumatic um i don't want to say too much about it because i feel like the best experience you'll have is if you know very little but ethan hawk gives a stellar performance really he you can't tell it's him he's kind of i think like philip seymour hoffman in a kind of chameleon way in the best the best possible way that mm. that he could be um and so it's it's quite stunning Right. How's Amanda Seyfried in it? Because she seems like an unusual person to be paired up with Schrader and Hawk for this story. I don't know how I feel about her. She is she has no singular qualities to me. Right. Um that sounds really horrible. <laughs> she's always fine, but she's never she never seems to stand out in my oh. in my experience of her. Right. I mean she's kind of she's quite perfect in the role, but this is really Ethan Hawke's movie. Mm, okay. Like, cool. through and through. Jesus doesn't want our suffering. He suffered for us. Mm-hmm. He wants our commitment and our obedience. Mm-hmm. And what of his creation? The heavens declare the glory of God. God is present everywhere in every plant, every river, every tiny insect. The whole world is a manifestation of his holy presence. I think this is an issue where, where the church can lead, but, but they say nothing. The, the U.S. Congress still denies climate change? Where were we when these people were elected? Both, both screenings are selling fast, so maybe if you're listening to this, you might want to get on board. Um, yeah, I think you definitely should. And... I also watched Los Silencios, the second feature from Brazilian filmmaker Beatriz Signa. Excuse my pronunciation. Um, now, I did only watch half an hour and then I fell asleep this afternoon. <laughs> I apologise. I'm going to blame my jet lag again. Thank you for your honesty. So <laughs> um, not everybody would say... Well, I'm going to go back to it because on, I was very drawn in. Um, it's a slow film, but I think it's going to be this really fascinating study of a particular um, portion of the world. Uh, it's... A, this point it's a it's a woman with two children who is seeking uh, refugee status in one of the islands around brazil because her husband has gone missing in a war and she's trying to prove that she needs support and i think it's just going to be a very simple study of this particular struggle and like having to kind of live through sadness and i am fascinated by that stuff particularly when you get to see parts of the world that don't get a whole lot of exposure Mm. Um, outside right. of, you know, this particular festival milieu. So, right, okay. Anyway, but that is screening a couple of times um, throughout the festival. Mm. Yes, it is. Uh, 4th of August, 11am at the Kino and 10th of August, 11am at the Forum. And is, do you, was there anything you're particularly excited about now that you've had the longer chance to look through the program and 
Yes, mm-hmm. I've had my first glance and now I'm going into the depths of the program. Two um, films that I'm looking forward to in particular. Uh, the first I'll give a shout out to is Terrell, which is Sebastian Silver's third collaboration with Michael Serra. This follows Crystal Fairy and the Magical Cactus and the film Magic Magic, which was an ultimately unsettling and sort of baffling, really, but in a good way, film which featured um, Michael Cera playing against type. Or maybe it's more accurate to say he leaned deeply into his type, which is quite creepy um, and unsettling. (laughs) And I think he does a similar thing in this film. It's being billed as an unsettling satire of white bro culture. And I think it takes place mostly in a house where all these white bros have gone for the weekend and they've invited their one African-American friend along. And I think what starts as unsettling becomes quite creepy. I'm going to say that Silver is very good at confronting the young middle-class hipster film festival audience in the way that somebody like Ruben Oslin satirises their wealthy parents. Mm, so right, I, that is the connection I'm making. We'll, we'll see what it's like. So I'm very excited about that film. And then I'm also keen to catch Hard Paint, the directorial debut, I'm fairly sure, of Felipe Matsembacha and Marcio Reolon. From what I've read, it's a sensual mood piece about alienation, as told through the prism of a young gay man who moonlights as a webcam performer known as Neon Boy. And he incorporates a lot of neon paint into his performances. So I think the film's supposed to be very sort of visually stunning. Anyway, the notable thing about this is um, that it won what is often considered the world's sort of most prestigious award for queer cinema, which is the Teddy Award at the Berlinale. So any film that gets a shout out there is worth... Uh, catching, I think. So mm. those are two of the uh, films that I've come to learn are in the festival and I'm excited about. What are you excited about, Andy? Well, I'm excited because there are a few films I've seen which I haven't really heard anybody else talk about because mm. it's actually been surprisingly tricky to find solid recommendations apart from a few other local reviewers, which um, I think is where we can really step up. I saw the Palm d'Or winning film Shoplifters by Hirokozu Koreeda and it doesn't probably... You saw that? Yeah. Where? At Cannes. <gasps> Oh, oh, yes, you went to Cannes. I went to Cannes. Sorry, oh, yeah. everybody. <laughs> what Wait, was that? what? I went to Cannes. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, um, sorry, that's this right. film you doesn't did. really need any more attention, but... Um, I booked but, in to see it. Good, good, because so. two, yeah, two of the three sessions have already sold out. It'll probably be a surprise screening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, so. it's such a strong film. It was, I think, my second favourite film at Cannes. Fantastic. And I was so thrilled that it won because it was really wasn't a sure thing by a long shot. So if anybody's seen any Hirokazu Koreeda's other films, like Nobody Knows, then you're probably just working in the same milieu. I've seen a lot and I'm going to sound really cliched, but I like a lot of his earlier films more than his more recent stuff. Oh, do you? (laughs) Which is why I'm... We did a season of... Uh, at Cinematech a couple of years ago and his early stuff is just stunning. So I really am hoping that this kind of the power and intensity of that emotion comes back in this. Yeah. Given given that it's got so much attention, maybe um, maybe that's a good sign that it, that it is. Yeah, I mean, it was a very popular win. Yep. Was people thinking Happy as Lazaro could have uh, beaten it um, or a couple of other movies that I didn't think were as strong. Like Everybody Knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm. that one is what you're talking about anymore. But anyway, no, shoplifters cannot be praised enough, I don't think. So it's an. I mean, it's interesting because he's continuing to tell this sort of similar story of outsiders on the in the fringes of Tokyo, and he could easily, you know, have the profile to turn in his attention to something else. But he keeps finding this inspiration there. And this one, this film is particularly interesting in that it's it's focused a lot on this girl who's five years old called Jury, who is adopted by this family, and what constitutes the bond of family is kind of explored in this film and. It's just it's, he's just so sure of himself. He's so good and so confident at working in this sort of field. You know, and he's working with uh, Lily Frankie and Kieran Kiki, who are some regulars of his other films. Everybody's just so on their game. It's like mm. it's so tightly put together. There's not a wasted scene. It's everything just makes you feel so much empathy for these people, and he just treats you really, really well. So, I would definitely try and get a ticket to the screening on the fourth of August at two thirty p.m. at the Regent Theatre because the other two sessions on the seventh and tenth have sold out. Another film that was really popularly received at Cannes and hasn't really been spoken much about is Lee Chang Dong's movie Burning, which is an adaptation of Haruki Murakami's Barn Burning short story. And Lee Chang Dong uh, did the movie Secret Sunshine and Poetry, which are both extremely highly regarded. Mm. Um, and similarly, this is also a fairly languorous story about relationships in a rapidly changing South Korea. 
he does take his time, but again, it's really built up very carefully and very beautifully. The premise is a slightly strange one, I suppose, because it doesn't really take that much from the premise isn't taking that much from the Murakami story. It's a story about this two people who fall in love with each other quite early on in the film, in the opening scenes, and then the one of them goes away overseas to Africa to travel, and she returns with another guy um, from, who's the actor Stephen Yarn from The Walking Dead who's a really, really like affluent young guy and you can't really work out what he does and he says he plays as a, as a way of living, as a means of making money. But he had, he's one of these South, South Korean young men who's just mysteriously extremely rich. Hmm. Um, and so it becomes this whole thing where you, the, this, the relationship between the two that you're introduced to is kind of explored and it gets turned into have these slightly political dimensions. But overwhelmingly, it's just sad and so beautiful, so beautifully put together. It might run a little long for some people at 148 minutes, but I did not think any of those minutes were wasted. Cool. And finally, my um, I think the movie um, Asako 1 and 2 is one that also nobody is talking about. Even at Cannes, it kind of got a bit of buzz when it first played and then it's nothing's really happened to it since. This is a Japanese movie about a couple called Asaku and Baku who fall in love straight away at a photography exhibition in Osaka. And it's, it becomes this Jacques Demy style, sort of like young love, magical realism sort of fable. And you think this oh. is where it's going to keep going, but then it just kind of spins on a dime. And overnight, um, Baku, the guy, vanishes with no explanation at all and you're not really sure what's happened and then two years later Ahsoka moves to Tokyo and finds his doppelganger but she can't work out if it's really him or if it's really a guy who just looks a lot like him because it becomes wow. this really kind of strange thing that's cool so yeah it's brilliant like, but the the, the to me for like first half an hour is just amazing that sounds fascinating it's Andy. incredible but then the rest of it's almost documentary like it's really strange wow so I'm going to put that on my list it's a really bold move the director is uh, uh, Ryusaki Hamaguchi Mm-hmm. And it's even like the use of doppelgangers is like not a new thing. He manages to find something really new and really interesting. Cool. So yeah, there's plenty of tickets for both for that film. Um, that's uh, on the third of August um, at four pm at Acme Two and nineteenth of August at four thirty at the Forum. So I would definitely go and see that. I'm going to book into that. I also just want to briefly mention Chronicle of the Years of Embers. This won the Palm d'Or at the 1975 Cannes Film Festival. It was the first and I think quite shockingly the only African film to have ever received that award. Really? So, yeah, it's screening as part of MIF's Fantastic African Film Rediscovered program this year which I'm hoping to get to a few films off, but that's the top of my list, definitely. It looks great. great. I have a ticket for that. It's the Saturday the 4th of August at 10 a.m., 177 minutes, and this is screening on a 35mm print. Right, which so, I'm guessing is not a very common occurrence. Well, it's going to be a good one. So, well, I can't say. Maybe it won't be. But anyway, it'll be a good experience. <laughs> yeah, great. Rather. So anyway, you should come along to that. Cool. And by the way, also, if you're listening to this and you have queries or you want some recommendations, get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. Or if you think that we should see something that you absolutely adored, please let us know. Please give me more recommendations. (laughs) Yeah, we're always on the... We're cinema cinema madness. (laughs) We're always on the tweets. We'll always get back to you. Those were our highlights at the outset of the Melbourne International Film Festival, which runs from August 2 to 19. And now the Cultural Capital Film Diary. Elsewhere in Melbourne, the Indian Film Festival is running from August 10 to 22, and as a friend of the podcast, Hayley Inch, pointed out, there's not a lot of overlap between the audiences of these two festivals. So take a chance to see some films that won't often be screening, um, such as the documentary Hari Krishna, The Mantra, The Movement and The Swami, who started it all, about Shri Prabhupada. Um, also, Love, Sonia which is uh, Tabarra Nurani's Hindi film starring Demi Moore, Mark Duplass and Frida Pinto about a woman who escapes a sex trafficking network and Abhay Simaya's adaptation of Macbeth in an Indian fishing village, Padayahi. Over at Acme, the season of films by New York filmmaker and sometime actor Sarah Driver runs until August 2nd and highlights include her documentary about the teenage years of Basquiat, Boom for Real, and her surrealist debut set in New York's Chinatown, Sleepwalk. I've seen Sleepwalk at MIF last yeah, year. Yeah, it was here last year, wasn't it? was yeah. excellent. And uh, this Tuesday, the 31st, I'm going to see When Pigs Fly, which is playing on an imported 35mm print as well. I haven't seen it, but I'm mm-hmm. all for it. Yes, I am. And a I've fan seen of... the Busker, and that was fine. Was it? Fine. Fine. Middling. It was fine. Right, okay. Thanks. No <laughs> <So> worries. <laughs> um, I'm always here to give you some valuable <laughs> opinions. It was fine. It was a fine movie. <laughs> 
Um, also at Acme, Argentine film The Desert Bride, about a woman who moves from Buenos Aires to the remote city of San Juan but gets lost on the way and discovers a very different Argentina, runs until August 7. Finally, at the Astor, a compelling double bill of 2018's biggest horror hit, Hereditary, is paired with a film I rambled about at length a couple of episodes ago, Don't Look Now. That's um, on Friday, August 3rd. The Marx Brothers return yet again on August 5th with A Night of the Opera and A Day at the Races, and Tim Burton's Batman and Batman Returns are put together on Monday, August 6th. How do you feel when I'm pointing this camera at you, John? <laughs> Same as I feel when you're not pointing this camera at me. It became obvious to me that John was at once the happiest and saddest man I've ever met. I remember a conversation with John where he said, the world's not totally, totally tragic. tragic. The, the world's, world's not, not totally bloody marvellous either. Or it is those things and every shade in between and there's a somewhere in the middle. She's not happy to the exclusion of unhappy. It's happy slash sad. It's aware. Melbourne documentarian Genevieve Bailey got a lot of attention with her award-winning 2011 feature debut I Am Eleven, which saw her travel around the world speaking to children about how they saw the world. Garnering rave reviews, it's taken seven years for Genevieve to return to Myth with a feature film, but the imminent premiere of her new film Happy Sad Man is already sold out, and Cultural Capital is happy to add to the building excitement about it. Here's a chat I had yesterday with Genevieve, and I have to say it's one of the best we've ever shared on the podcast. First of all, thanks a lot for being on Cultural Capital. Welcome. <laughs> um, so I just saw Happy Sad Man, and the first thing that I was struck by was how you managed to get these particular people to open up to you in this particular way. So can you start by telling me a little how you wound up choosing to tell this particular story about mental illness and the way that Australian men experience it? Sure. Well, John, who features in the film, is one of my best friends. So I made a documentary short about him when I was at university and we've just never left each other alone since then. So right. we're quite the odd couple. He's nearly twice my age and we just get along so well and I find him very charismatic and curious and challenging actually as a friend and I think that's really great. So I decided I wanted to make a feature-length documentary exploring his life because he is at once the happiest and saddest man I've ever met. And then I always knew it was possible with John because we have such a close friendship. But I decided that if I, I decided if I was to include some other men's stories in the film, I could broaden, um, broaden the sort of experiences explored and hopefully broaden the audience as well. So that's why I decided to include some other men. So there's five, five guys in the finished film. Three of them I already knew and was friends with and then two of them I met through the making of the film. Okay, right. Yeah. I was really struck by the rapport you managed to get with these particular people. Was it in the editing or was it there right from the beginning? Oh, it's not the editing. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm laughing just because the idea that I cut out all the bits, other bits. But no, I mean, I think that's my job as a director is to make people feel comfortable. And I feel like if I'm being interviewed right now and I wasn't comfortable with you, then I wouldn't really sound like me. So I think mm -hmm. that's my role as a director is to make sure... I'm making documentaries, not fiction, and that people feel like and look like themselves on, on my camera, um, through my camera. So, yeah, I just I guess that's something I've developed over time um, through making a lot of short films and practising my craft is making sure people can trust me. I think that's a big thing. Um, and so I'm really grateful that all these men have trusted me and we do have that sort of rapport that you that you've noticed. You make it seem extremely easy and the, the men, the way that they discuss their own experiences of mental illness or what passes for normal life for them seems to be extremely erudite in the way that they express themselves and that seems to me the sort of thing like this is, you know, as you point out in the film, a conversation we struggle to have as a country and particularly the masculine yeah. you know, dimension of this country. Yeah. I mean, in some ways I think perhaps with some of the men, the conversations I've had with them exploring their mental health are conversations they may not have had with other people and then with some people like Ivan or with John they're a bit older and maybe in their experiences they are more comfortable talking with some people about it but I think it, it varies from person to person even from day to day how someone's feeling and whether or not they feel like exploring and opening up in that way so that's the beauty of documentaries I feel is 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 being in it for the long haul I don't try and make a film in two or three months try and capture a slice of life it's not a news report it's not like a little glimpse into their life it's actually several years of getting to know them and documenting and and being there through the highs and the lows that's 
my goal with Happy Sad Man is to feel like you've really been on a journey with them. You haven't just kind of got a little snapshot of a day in the life. It's 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 a day in the life of many years. <laughs> what is the time frame for making Happy Sad Man? Yeah, I was thinking it was about five years, but when I looked at the rushes and some of the early interviews, they were actually seven years ago. I didn't know it was going to take this long, but I think documentaries need to take as long as they need to take. And I think that this work is better for the fact that it took that long. If I tried to make it in two years, um, you know, I'm sure it would have been interesting. But mm. <laughs> I think it's better now that it's been made over such a long period of time. You seem to have this really great eye as well because there's a lot of – it's not because it could quite easily have been a bit of a talking heads sort of situation, but there's constantly – you're referring back to the environment and putting these men in where they seem to be most comfortable or what they're most familiar with or the particular places like in the case of Grant, you know, where he's on the beach and he's doing a Fluoro Fridays. Yeah. Like there were moments like, you know, you just get so used to seeing these men in their environments and then yeah. when the camera tilts up and you see the scale, the number of people involved in this particular thing that Grant started up, it's just, yeah, it's really striking to be able to see that sort of transformation take place. Did you learn a lot from making this? Oh, so much. I'm just glad that you noticed that as well. Like I, it's a compliment to me that I haven't made a film that's just talking heads because I'm really passionate about cinematography and I shot most of the film myself so I'm glad that you didn't feel it was a boring talking head. Oh god no, no no it's constantly moving all the time so, there's so many edits for a documentary there seems to be a lot of shifting between Skype screens and then people in you know in the in the desert in the case of John or somebody like yeah. that or in the water under the water. Yeah or in yeah. Syria. Yeah or in Syria <laughs> yeah. yes. So yeah. yeah I'm glad you noticed that but um did I learn oh my gosh I just learned so much I just that's what I love about this craft that I've chosen to be so addicted to. There could be worse things to be addicted to than making documentaries. I just I just find it constantly keeps me on my toes and I used to do a lot of short fiction, like drama and comedy films, and they were great and I have lots of ideas that are that are script-based, but actually non-fiction is what really keeps me on my toes and challenges me the most, which is why I like it because in many ways you're not in control of the narrative, like you're watching it unfold and you have to make sense of it in the edit suite. So I think making the film, I've learned so much, but I'm also anticipating that when the film is launched, I will learn so much through the audience response to it, which is what happened with my last film, is touring with it around the world and hearing what people think about it. That's like, really informative for me as a filmmaker because I'm pretty obsessed with audience engagement and I don't just make my films for myself and then think I don't care what people think. I care so much about what audiences think. So that's a big part for me is, is hearing the response immediately in cinemas with people that's what what really drives me so how was it different from making your previous film i'm 11 uh, i'm 11 was a huge project because i'd never been out of australia before and i ended up going to 15 countries to make it right, yeah. <laughs> whereas um happy sad man is shot predominantly here in australia and i think with i'm 11 i learned so much about cultural like cultural aspects of of traveling around the world making a film in 12 languages and I think with Happy Sad Man, it's much more interior film, like going into people's inner world in a way and also having to craft a film that will engage audiences because if you make a film that, in my opinion, a documentary that's really heavy and dark and bleak, there's a, totally a, a space for those sort of films in the market. But for me, I wanted to make something that had light and shade and I wanted there to be humour in the film and joy and light as well as some of the more challenging stuff which you would have seen. So I think I learned a lot about balance funnily enough, making a film called Happy Sad Man, about balance and striking that balance so that audiences can really engage with these men and, and, and feel like they would want to spend time with them. Uh, did you feel much pressure after the success of I'm Eleven? Because, I mean, that got international distribution that was reviewed in the New York Times really positively. Was there any sort of pressure to go, OK, now I can become an international filmmaker and make another movie in different parts of the world? I mean, I definitely love shooting overseas and I know that I'll make future films, including a sequel for I'm Eleven overseas. But with Happy Sad Man, you know, when I think back I wish I interviewed myself or someone interviewed me really early on because it's hard to go back seven years ago and go what was my initial idea I have a sense of it but I think that I wanted to explore masculinity and constructs of masculinity in Australia and, and, and these broad ideas but actually the strength of what I found I was getting when I was shooting was actually like you mentioned those intimate relationships with very individual men rather than sort of I'm not speaking about Australia on a hold or how can you do that anyway you can't generalize but I think for me um I realised that if I was to travel around the world to make this film, I would love to do that. I would still be interested in doing that. But for this film, it was the very intimate, personal connections I had with these guys. That was what I was exploring most. Yeah, one thing that struck me was dealing with mental illness and putting these people you know, who have different expressions of it in front of the camera. Was there ever an issue with consent? 
Um, there was no issue with consent in terms of all the men were happy to be involved. And then through the post-production process, if there was a stage where any of the men, for example, didn't feel comfortable and didn't want to be involved, I, I totally took that on. And if there were even scenes in the film, for example, that men were, you know, could you change that or I'm not quite comfortable with that, I totally take that on board. I know some filmmakers maybe would think, well, you know, we've got it shot, I want to use that. But for me, if the film is finished and the people in the film don't stand by it and aren't proud of it, I don't know, I can't enjoy it. So for all me, the subjects, yeah. they got final cuts? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 what was interesting is that there was a couple of times where a, a couple of the guys saw some things in it and were like, you know, in the same way that I would feel a bit cringy if I see myself on screen. But they were able to move past that without any prompting for me by saying, oh, you know, there's that bit, but actually that's going to help someone hopefully. So I don't really mind, like, use it, yeah, put it in there. Great, so that right. was super exciting yeah. to see, even at Rough Cut, that the men were able to see that the film could have a positive social impact and that's a big goal um, when making a film like this is to know that audiences will take something away from it. Particularly in the case of John, if I look at what he's doing, like he's eating healthily, he's writing a lot, he's reflecting on his life a lot, he's emotionally very open, he wants to have new experiences, he's doing everything healthy that you would think a person would need to do. Were you struck by how much you know, is genetic or how much his, his childhood is perhaps responsible for somebody's expression of, say, in his case, bipolar later on? It's interesting because... Making I'm 11, audiences would often come up and talk to me about their childhood and often very positive stories, but sometimes very tragic stories. And I think that helped inform my decision to make Happy Sad Man because it reminded me that our childhood can be so influential in our adult lives. And so, yeah, I mean, I think some people feel there's, and there is a very strong genetic link in some families that John, there was a history of bipolar in his family. Whereas some people can say, look, I don't have any, you know, any um, relatives who have experienced depression but actually like I hit 40 or I lost my job or my partner died or you know something tragic happened and you can live a life without any depression or anxiety and that can come to you later in life so I think it's a bit of both and I am hopefully making a film that helps people become aware of the fact that there's no like one right or wrong way to kind of slot yourself in one of these categories John talks about this idea of being slotted a lot like being slotted as this or slotted as that and I think it's a spectrum and I think that at different times of life um, different things happen to us or around us that can really impact on our mental health so for John he was very aware of living with bipolar and for some of the other men it's maybe something that they learnt more about at different stages. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it does seem to shift over the time because I wasn't sure how many years it had been filmed over but you yeah. can see people's expressions changing like how, you know, how they're dealing with it or where they are, or in the case of Jacob making life decisions yes. to change his circumstances. Yeah. Because there are so many huge subjects you touch on, but then you pull back to just keeping it in the characters, which I thought was really interesting. Because you could look do a whole thing about you know, John's particular case of not being able to be seen by a hospital because there were, there were no beds or something like that. So that's the whole thing you touch on there. Then there's another thing about medication. Yeah. The psychology of being wanting to be a war photographer is a whole <laughs> documentary potentially into itself. Yeah. Why somebody would want to do that and chase trauma in that particular way was really fascinating. But also it was like it went as far as the characters seemed to want to let it go and then you kind of pull it back into this picture. So what really struck me was the way that you edited it together. I mean, I can only imagine you must have had dozens of hours, hundreds of hours maybe of rushes. Yeah, it's true. I mean... It's the thing when you think about a documentary, you look at all your footage and my last film had about 125 hours of footage and then people only see an hour and a half. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. for Happy Sad Man, now we count in terms of terabytes and I'm not sure how many hours, but we had you know, hundreds of hours of footage. And I think that um, the process of cutting the film with Annabelle Johnson, my editor, was really interesting because she watched all of it. She watched every single minute of it and marked it all up and wrote notes. Wow. And um, working with her was really great because she didn't have a relationship with any of the men. So she's purely watching them on screen in the way that you would watch them on screen. And then um, when Annabelle finished the edit, I've continued to do some more editing since then and fine cut the film. Because I'm 11 and Happy Sad Man are both multiple character ensemble stories where those characters don't intersect and don't know each other. That's really different as well because you've got these separate worlds that you're intercutting throughout the film, which is a real... It's a challenge, actually. Um, if it was a film about five people who all knew each other, like friends, <laughs> they'll be hanging out on the couch and catching up. And it's so not that. It's different worlds. Like I said, you've got... You're out in the desert, you're on Bondi Beach or in a war zone or in country Victoria. So they're all different environments. But I love that challenge of having to then piece it all together. Did you mean for yourself to become a character toward the end of the film? No, no. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, I didn't imagine when I started making Happy Sad Man that I would be in it to the extent that I am. 
But at the same time, in the same way that my men trusted me with their stories, I had to trust that I'm not a fly in the wall. I'm not an invisible person in this film. I'm part of it. And so I put aside the cringe factor of seeing myself or hearing myself on screen and just went with it for the sake of telling the best story that I could. Yeah, I didn't imagine what would happen without giving anything away towards the end of the film, but I became very much in the documentary and... um, yeah. Yeah, because it's interesting because in this film, much like some of the best documentaries I saw in last year's myth, you break rules like for documentary making, like you pass judgment on David at one point where you say, I'm not embarrassed, I, <laughs> this sort of stuff. And it's like, hang on, you can't, what happened to objective observation? Like you're just, you're not really documenting things anymore, you're becoming like a participant. And then toward the end, you know, you turn up in front of the camera and stuff as well. And so was there ever a point where you were like, Mm, should I leave that in? Or? Yeah, I definitely check those things. Like I, as a filmmaker, am super open to feedback. So even to the point that I maybe show more people than some people think I should before it's finished. So I do rough cut screenings and get feedback from all different sorts of people who, who, are, who are working in the film industry, but also people who have never made a film, don't watch documentaries, not really into films. Like I get feedback from them. And one of the things I asked is in that scene that you're mentioning where I, I sort of mentioned to one of the men in the film that I'm not embarrassed by him when someone else says maybe someone was embarrassed by him. I feel very protective of him in that moment and I think that I want to check that, that as you say, it was breaking a rule in, in inverted commas, but yeah, the yeah, audiences that commas. I spoke to about it said, no, 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 that's good, you've got to keep that in there. And so, yeah, I listen to audiences when I'm, when I'm editing and I discuss those things and I give myself time to ponder and whether or not I'm comfortable with it, but I really am. Given that you, you know, with the success of I'm 11 and all the opportunities that must have come, I imagine must have come after that, was there like a particular way that you wanted to come home and wanted to kind of explore this issue that I suppose is really all around us? Yeah, I think my brother summed it up well when he said two things. One of them was that he said when he first watched the rough cut, this film is kind of like your love letter to your friend John. And then I think it can be extended to being a love letter to the other men in the film as well, non-romantic love. Mm, mm. And I think non-romantic, like platonic friendship love is something that's very underexplored in cinema, both in fiction and non-fiction. But I also think that my brother summed it up by saying that I wanted to explore experiences of men that we don't typically see on our screens because the, the men that we hear about in the mainstream media and we see in the news and the men who are doing all sorts of undesirable, horrible, tragic, intense things to other people in the world, that doesn't really reflect the men in my life. I have so many awesome men in my life and John's one of them and David is another and and I I felt like when I was spending time with these men I was kind of thinking I want to share them with the world, I want to share these stories with the world and I think because they're honest and brave enough to talk about their own mental health. As a feminist I think I talked a lot with my composer Nick Huggins about this. These conversations are not just conversations for women to have with each other. I feel like I've made the film from a female perspective because I've, I live my life as a woman, but I also think that we've got to start with having conversations that are difficult like this with men to open up people's acceptance and understanding of the fact that this stuff needs to be talked about and not pushed under the carpet. And I think more and more of that is happening now in Australia, but there's a long way to go for it to become destigmatized to the extent that it needs to be. Yeah, there was a certain visceral thrill to watching the openness with which people were talking about it. It almost felt like anarchic or subversive in a way. The fact that, you know, Ivan could just sit there, kick back on his farm and just start talking about depression and talking about Doug's dementia and this sort of stuff. Like it was just, it was kind of just jaw-dropping in a way because I'd never really seen these sorts of conversations happen without tears or without, you know, a logo of 60 minutes over the bottom corner of the screen or something like that, you know, where this is like a massively important conversation. Actually, it's extremely casual in the way that you framed it. Yeah. Which empowers it again, I feel. I spoke a couple of weeks ago at a Women in Film event, a panel of of women talking about filmmaking, and one of the questions was, why do you think there's a higher number of women working in documentary than in fiction, and is it because women are more empathetic, and do you find that that informs the way you tell stories? And my answer to that was, I've never lived my life male, I don't identify as being male, but I'm also, I don't really gender myself in a huge way. Like I'm just Genevieve, I'm just, this is who I am. And, and I think if I was born male, I feel that I would still be me. I would still be a curious, dog-loving, empathetic <laughs> filmmaker. Like, mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to say whether, oh, if I was male, I wouldn't 
be telling the story in this way. I just find it really hard to kind of... But at the same time, another person um, who was on the panel who was asked that question, her answer was, well, I don't think I'm a very empathetic person. I'm not good with empathy. So I thought that's very interesting as well because these sort of words that we attach to people based on their gender, that women are nurturing and caring and all those things and men are, you know, more stoic or less likely to express their emotions. And I really want to challenge and disrupt those ideas as being so... What's the word? binary I guess yeah yeah I suppose because there, in a way I mean when I was looking at this I was thinking well we don't have women's sheds women will potentially just go sit on a couch and chat they won't have to organise it and put walls around it and make it a male domain yeah sort of thing to be able to talk about mental health well when I was doing research there was a great quote that one of the guys I was speaking to in Dublin actually said which was that men like to talk shoulder to shoulder and I noticed on the Men's Shed website when I was looking at it yesterday that it says Men's Shed and then underneath it, shoulder to shoulder. Right. So this idea that if you're doing something, it sounds like a bit of a stereotype, but I guess you know, research shows that people have done a lot more research than me into this, that a lot of men feel more comfortable talking about difficult stuff when they're doing something or in a car. Yes. Or fishing, or yeah, looking yeah. straight ahead. So you're not looking. It can be very. And in some cultures, the idea of looking and eye contact is somewhat confrontational. Mm. I mean, I'm pointing a camera at someone with a lens with my two eyes, but um, just creating a space where where people are comfortable is is a big passion of mine. Yeah, with I'm Eleven, like a lot of people were talking about Michael Apted's Seven Up series, and I was thinking, you know, when you get to the Seven Up or Fourteen Up, if you're a fourteen year old and you being arrived at by a man in a suit surrounded by other men with gear and they're pointing a camera in your face and asking you to talk about your feelings, you're not really going to get much information out of that. But in the case of this film, you've, you know, you've got <laughs> years of experience and you know, familiarity. There, You are really going to get some real insights. Yeah, I mean, there's so much with Happy Sad Man that doesn't make it into the finished film. Right. But that's the exciting thing now about the online space and social media and whatnot is being able to share even more content. So once someone's watched Happy Sad Man and hopefully been drawn to some or all of these men to then be able to look up more and find out more about them. And I want to also produce a Happy Sad Man podcast. Right. And I've got a portrait series. So in addition to the film, there's hundreds of portraits that I've shot of different men, not in the film, sharing their stories as well. I guess Humans of New York is a, a very famous project which I was inspired by because every day you can go back and, and hear a new story, or read a new story. So I think Happy Sad Man is something that I, I will no doubt be exploring and producing in many different mediums for a long time. I'm not sick of it yet. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Genevieve Bailey, the director of Happy Sad Man, which is one of my highlights of myth for sure. Given that we're halfway through the year, we decided to step away from you for a few minutes and just talk about some of the films that we've appreciated the most in 2018 so far. There probably hasn't been, I think it's fair to say, a lot of five-star standout films so far. There's an awful lot of interesting stuff coming out in the second half of the year, but the first half of the year is always an interesting mix of leftovers from 2017 in January and um, new releases that are kind of don't have a big critical hype behind them. Anders, what has stood out for you and do you think people might have overlooked uh, well, I completely agree with you. I, when I was looking at my favourite films of this year, I think I saw most of them in January um, and yeah. February. And uh, yeah, but anyway, look, the top of the list so far is a film that we've talked about a thousand times before, so I won't um, elaborate, but BPM, beautiful, moving and deeply cinematic. Robin Campillo is one of my favourite contemporary directors, actually. So loved that. And that's followed closely behind by Agnes Varda and JR's Faces Places. The, those were films from last year that I only got to see um, this year. But in terms of my favourite new release films I've seen this year, number one for me is... Andre Zhiangenzev's Loveless. This is a bitter, slow burn of a movie that coalesces into a scathing portrait of alienation in Vladimir Putin's Russia. The Crimean annexation factors in the background of a lot of this film in the form of TV newscasts that characters mostly ignore. Um, It might seem like an obvious premise, you know, we're alienated by contemporary capitalism by the politics, um, particularly in in this film, um, uh, explores that as well. But that doesn't mean that that observation is not correct. And I think it's so deftly depicted in this film. It really, you feel the bleak pessimism in every single frame. These are people who are just like, 
I, they, the human interaction, it's all about a, a kid who goes missing. I don't even realize for um, a while. And his parents who have split up go searching uh, for their child. Yet all of the characters are just unhappy, self-obsessed and alienated, you know, from themselves and from each other and from the very real things that are happening in that country. So I just find it really, really compelling. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, really fuck, I love that film too. It's so beautiful and so ugly. Uh, and how those two things can coexist um, in such a powerful way is just Mm. a testament to that filmmaker, I think. So plus one for Loveless for me and a plus one for BPM Mm. as well. Yeah. Definitely Um, one of the highlights of last year's Miff, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think uh, I'm just going to say Phantom Thread Mm. has to be one of my faves from this year. Absolutely. And you can listen back to episode 41 when I believe we had JDM. We with did. us, yeah. I'm um, reviewing that <laughs> and Sweet Country, which is also um, up there, got into the top 10 of that recent poll done by flicks.com.au of uh, film critics and top Australian films of uh, this apparently century. Apparently, it's the biggest ever film poll of Australian critics. 51 critics. 51 critics. Yeah. Um, That's a lot of people. 53, including us. Yeah, I, that episode has, I guess, two of my favourite films of the year, although I would rate Phantom Thread more highly just for its, uh, I guess, tricksiness and emotional mm. intensity. Also, I'm, I put this in my list of top ten Australian films of this century, Soda Jerks, Terranalius. Mm. Absolutely banger this year. So um, I put that in there. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, the second half of the year is always more promising. It's, mm. it's Oscar season. It's a festival, you know, season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, after Khan, at least, you know, we don't get any Khan titles until now in Australia. Well, hang out for um, the end of the year. <laughs> yes, yes. For me, I think I'd have to agree so far, Phantom Thread, I really liked. I Loveless was incredible. I really loved Black Panther. Which we didn't speak oh, yeah, about very yeah. much, but yeah, yeah, great, um, great I film. would not be surprised if that's part of the Oscar conversation mm-hmm. in eight months' time. And also, two of the films that are turning up at MIF, which we haven't talked about yet, Cold War, um, Paul I'm so excited you see that. Yeah, it's breathtaking. I'm so um, into it. The one session I want to go to is sold out. So, someone please just like <laughs> give back your ticket and I'll take it. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, yeah, everything you liked about Eda is like times 10 in this because he still keeps the same framing, the same gorgeous black and white attention to detail. So that guy. Oh, yeah, that cool. dude. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So th- everything's happening in the bottom third of the square frame. It's all that sort of Fantastic. stuff. Oh, yeah. But this time it's more jazz. It's much more, there's a bigger canvas. It's against, you know, changing Poland. And blah, blah, blah. I won't spoil too much about it, but oh it's stunning. And it's. I'm sure it's going to get, it's, it'll be playing at Cinema Nova for months. Surely. Yeah. And Kapanam, which is my favourite film I've seen in a very long time. So this Kapanam is uh, Nadine Labowski's uh, film that's already selling fast at NIF. It's on my list. Good, mm-hmm. yeah, it should be on everybody's. Um, although I can understand why, if you go to Letterboxd or you go to any, if you look at reviews, there's a sprawl of from half a star to five stars where people are, are taking up against the emotional manipulation that they see the film has. So just briefly, it's about a boy who uh, is suing his parents for giving him life, which is actually about about 15% of the film itself. That's just, If you look at the trailer, the tra- trailer is in a courtroom where this boy is saying, I want to sue my parents for giving birth to me. And it's, it's actually kind of a slightly clumsy scaffold to put the film against because it's much, much more about his existence on the streets of Beirut looking after a baby uh, who's played by a girl, a baby girl called Treasure, but who is actually a, a, a boy in the movie. And it's, it's the finest performance you'll ever see by anybody under the age of three. It's just jaw-dropping, the amount of motion and the range wow. and the fact it just seems so natural. And the interaction and the relationship between this boy, um, Zane, who's 12, and this baby uh, who he kind of ended up becoming a carer for when his Ethiop- undocumented immigrant Ethiopian mother vanishes, played by an undocumented Ethiopian actress. So it's got it's got this just dazzling ability to to draw you and then pull you along and then change the way that you feel about everything because it's quite easy to get jaded. At the beginning, you really hate this kid because he's stabbed somebody and he's he's just really rude to the judge. He seems to be an imbecile, and then gradually over the next you know hour and a bit, you just fall. I don't understand how anyone can really take against it. I can see that they might think that. 45 minutes of neorealism of kids living on a street is a bit too much maybe in 2018. Maybe some people's tolerance for neorealism is just a bit lower <laughs> than it was a couple of years ago. I don't know. But also I feel like the idea that it's emotionally manipulative is just too 
it's too basic in a way. Like, it, like I mean, there's a lot of reviewers I really respect have given it two stars, two and a half stars, going it's absolutely dazzling, but also it's a chaotic mess. But I'm mm. like, life is a chaotic mess. Life in Beirut is a chaotic mess. Yeah. Mm. The idea of living on the street, there's nothing straightforward or Darden Brothers about, you know, nar- straight narrative about this. You have to be, it has to be sprawling in a way. Yeah, well, maybe if you and I see it, Anders, we can have a bigger chat in one yeah. of our, yeah. one of our th- during the fest myth dispatches. Yeah, it is in this weird limbo state that you must know about from having gone to mm. Sundance where you've got an opinion but nobody else around you yeah, can share. Yeah, yeah. You can't talk about it yet. So yeah, I'll be very keen to see what people make of that. Cool. Um, and that's Kapanam, And that's you can still catch you get tickets to that on the 4th of August at 1.45pm at Hoyts. Hey, million dollars in the car. What's the story? What's the story? اعلام وصحافه وبعثت وراهم على السجن عارف ليش انت هون؟ اي نعم ليه؟ بدي اشتكي على اهلي ليه بدك شك على اهلك؟ لانه خلفوني Which brings us to the end of episode 51 of Cultural Capital. Thank you very much uh, for listening through. And why not get extra thanks from us by giving us some stars on uh, iTunes. Please do. Yeah, yeah we'd love some five-star Talk reviews. to us about Myth. Myth, talk to us. It's all good. Um, you can follow us on Facebook at Cultural Capital Podcast. Um, we're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. And you can find me at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anders Furs. And I'm at Eloise Laurie Ross. Mm-hmm.